0: Last week, we heard a lengthy testimony about how God has worked in this church over 23 years. There are many, many great stories, some that we did not have time to tell, um, about faith, about growth, about love. For me, it brought back many sweet memories of a joyful and caring fellowship we've had through the years, lifelong friends that have been gained These relationships were crucial for being able to work through all of the uh, challenges that we faced as a church, and they're necessary in the church now for facing the challenges that we face. Life in the church, however, has its rough edges. There are things that don't go right or well in the church. Unfortunately, when I look back at certain old pictures, it also brings back some unpleasant memories of broken relationships, of disingenuous love that was uncovered. Romans 12.9 urges us, let love be without hypocrisy, and sometimes the love that is proclaimed in a church, well, when it's given time, it's uncovered to see that it was not quite as committed as it proclaimed. In a number of cases, relationships were ruptured due to people who were professing love but spoke strong, judgmental words to their brothers in Christ. Some church members here through the years uh, formed excessively negative judgments or opinions about their brothers in Christ and then over time those opinions of course get voiced. Rather than admitting what was going on inside of the heart was not all that loving, they would lump together poor conclusions about others and their judgments and then speak those words and then uh, the relationship was, was hurt. Even when people are confronted about the words that they have said and that they don't seem to have any merit or any evidence for it, Uh, the way we are is we often justify our quick judgments rather than taking a close look at our own selves. And, of course, in many of these cases, they abandoned their brethren and moved on to another church to bring that same lack of love to another congregation. I remember in one case there was a, a mature small group leader we had here at Hope. He was a patient man and he was patiently helping another man in his small group. That's what small group leaders are supposed to do. This other man had a lot of pride and he expressed a lot of anger in his home along with a good amount of anxiety. His sin was rather obvious. Uh, It was often on his face. It was hurting his family. And yet, rather than working through his problems and being grateful there was someone there being patient with him and correcting him, he ended up judging the small group leader as being too strict, too picky. And he took his family. He departed the church and, again, taking his unteachable spirit to another congregation. I remember another man who repeatedly said that we did not do quality Bible study here at Hope Bible Church. Let's try to think about that one. I haven't been accused of that too often. But you would rarely see him avail himself of the uh, more in-depth kinds of Bible studies and courses that we have here. He fancied himself a great Bible student, but did not seem to put into practice the simple things of the Christian life which many other people did, such as coming to church regularly or getting here on time. There were many things in his own walk that could be um, challenged by other people, but others were being patient with him. He was a man that was unwilling to sit down, be corrected by those that were more mature in the congregation. He was willing to offer sweeping judgments of other people but not let someone else examine his own life and his own motives. Sadly, I could multiply these stories. When you're a pastor for many years, you begin to see that this is much more common than you wish that it would be. We have seen some serious characters come through our doors before, hypocrites who loudly cry down the sin they see in others. They think they see in others sin that is so bad they believe they have to leave the church but they won't deal with that greater log that is in their own eye as the Lord Jesus put it. Have you ever had that kind of a thing happen to you before? Have you ever had somebody falsely accuse you or more likely take something that is wrong in your life and could be improved but greatly exaggerate how bad it is while they minimize the things that seem to be pretty clearly wrong in their own life. I think the Lord in His wisdom allows these kinds of experiences to happen to us, to humble us, and to teach us not to do that to other people, not to form judgments and opinions that are too harsh and too strong against other people. When we hurt, it allows us to see the seriousness of that sin, and it halts us from forming those kinds of judgments and speaking those judgments against other people. Do you remember the royal law, as James chapter 2 calls it, the royal law of Christ, love one another, um, love your neighbor as yourself? Um, In uh, Matthew 7, it says, In everything, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. Well, ask yourself, do you want somebody to magnify your faults, to exaggerate your faults, or do you want someone to love you and help you through your faults? Wrongful judging can not only ruin relationships, but it unmasks people for who they really are. It displays their disloyalty. It can pour rain on a church's love parade. Things can be going along really well. People are serving Christ. And then comes that person who utters a judgment, gets the gossip going. And now there's a lot of serious hurt in the congregation. In fact, if you talk to pastors, words like that can split a church right down the middle. That's how harsh and how serious they can be. When I talk to other pastors, I could see this is by no means a problem isolated to Hope Bible Church. The sin of judging is found across the spectrum of churches. It doesn't matter the denomination. It doesn't matter the part of the country. It's just the way people are. It's like envy or greed or lust. It's a deed of the flesh, and we find it uh, everywhere. I believe that the devil loves using unloving instruments to tear down and discourage people as they're trying to serve the Lord ever so imperfectly, but nevertheless trying, going along, and then he likes to get his voice in there and tear down people and uh, speak against them. And that's why the Bible, the Scriptures speak strongly against judging your brother. Judging others unfairly perverts truth, causes disunity, violates that royal command to love one another, and reveals an ugly pride in one's own opinions. Boy, if there's something we have the most pride about, it is our own opinions. We know we are not wrong. And yet, uh, one man's case seems just, I think we read in the Proverbs, until someone else comes along and examines it, and then you realize the weaknesses of their position. As a pastor, I have learned firsthand that judging others is an insidious sin, and not just in the world, not just in false churches, but in I would say lurking in the shadows of otherwise good and strong, biblical, conservative, gospel-preaching churches. A church history story from the Daily Bread devotional back in 1992 illustrates this problem of judging. I'll read it to you. John Wesley told of a man he had little respect for because he considered him to be miserly and covetous. One day, when this person contributed only a small gift to a worthy charity, Wesley openly criticized him. After the incident, the man went to Wesley privately and told him he had been living on parsnips and water for several weeks. He explained that before his conversion, he had run up many bills. Now, by skimping on everything and buying nothing for himself, he was paying off his creditors one by one. Christ has made me an honest man, he said, and so with all these debts to pay, I can give only a few offerings above my tie. I must settle up with my worldly neighbors and show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once dishonest. Well, Wesley then apologized to the man and asked his forgiveness. Well, John Wesley is a more godly man than I think most of us are, um, but he formed the false judgment against a brother. Now, if a man like like John Wesley can judge someone else wrongly and falsely, then I figure that we can as well, that we could fall into that sin. Sometimes we wrongfully judge other people because we use a wrong standard as to what we think Christ wants us to do, and we use that standard and we bring it to measure against someone else's life and we see that they fall short of that and then we judge them here's another story i want to read to you it's from the book who are you to judge by dave Swaveley, and he recounts this dilemma our denomination well this is a story that was told him our denomination believes in having revival services which run for one week twice a year my husband and i do not object to having the revival services. However, we are having great difficulty resolving the issue of whether or not we as a family should attend every single service held during the week. Prior to every revival we have for about two to three weeks, the pastor's messages revolve around our obligation to be at the revival services. These get so heavy to the point of implying that if you do not attend every service, then you must be backslidden, or nearly so, and your priorities are messed up because you do not want to be a church, attending an opportunity to worship the Lord and learning from His Word. However, my husband feels that we have a responsibility to our family given by God and that it is not right to force us to keep our children up past 9 p.m. when they have school the next day especially for an entire week. He is not opposed to going to some of the services or even having one of us go while the other stays home with the children. Our pastor has two young children also and has said that he believes that they should be in church regardless of school because God comes first, as he says. He has also stated that you will be where you want to be and if you truly want to be in church in the presence of God, then you will be. Again, this implies that if you are not there, then you must not want to be, so you must not love the Lord like you should. You see the problem? Here's a family that evidently is pretty dedicated to coming to church, to dedicating, to worshiping the Lord, and yet there's a standard there that a pastor has, and maybe in his own heart he really believes that, but does a person have to come out to church every single time the doors are open? And the answer to that, of course, is no but he had the wrong standard. You see, Christians who want to do the right thing, in some cases who are zealous to do truth or to stand for righteousness, can still make hurtful judgments against others because they make an error in their judgment. That first quote illustrates the danger of insufficient evidence, and the second story illustrates the error of using a wrong standard when judging. God's Word warns us against judging. Luke chapter 6, verse 37, the Lord Jesus said, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. In James 4, verse 11, it says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law. Why? Because the law commands us to love, not to judge. And then the theme verse for this series of messages that I'm giving is from Romans chapter 14 and verse 13. It says, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, meaning it's going on, but let's stop it. Today, we begin a much-needed mini-series on judging. I've spoken on this before. I believe the last time was about 10 years ago, though, and so I think it's time for us to take a look at this critical issue again. I want us to take our time. I don't want to rush through this. I want us to go slowly. I want us to go deep. God's Word has much to say about forming correct opinions of other people and about when to express them and when not to express them. What is proper judging? What is improper judging? When is it right to call out someone in their behavior? When is it wrong? When are we to speak up for righteousness and when do we need to keep our mouth quiet because we don't know enough? When have we formed opinions about other people that are incorrect? How do we apply this teaching to many, many issues that confront us in living the Christian life in modern times? The elders thought it would be wise for me to address the potential for disunity at this time just because of so many things that are going on in the world, but our virus and different convictions that people have about how to handle this disease or many other issues as well. Um, the truth is, though we preach on this subject again and again, it is something that keeps rearing its ugly head again and again. And so please uh, be prayerful about this series and join me in praying that the Lord might slay the head of this hideous dragon called judging. We return today to a passage of preached on before. It's Romans chapter 14. Romans is such an incredible book of the Bible and has so many wonderful chapters in it that sometimes chapter 14 gets overlooked, chapter 14 and 15 really. They get overlooked for the wisdom that they offer for love and unity in a local congregation. So please open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. It's incredibly insightful and I think has universal application, meaning there's something in here for all of us as we develop convictions about the Christian life. It's an incredibly rich, applicational passage. In fact, it may radically revolutionize the way you think of applying Scripture. It can actually free you from legalistic tendencies and replace it with a loving disposition towards others. And instinct, to love and be patient rather than quickly evaluate someone else and condemn them. But I kind of want to warn you that this is where the rubber meets the road, so to say, when it comes to practicing love, and you may learn something here about yourself that you do not like. Let's go ahead and read the passage, Romans 14. We're going to go verses 1 through 13, and today we're only going to barely get started on it. Verses 1 through 13. And it says, now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not... For the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more. And then it goes on um, to speak of some more instruction related to that. Did you know that the early church also struggled with being judgmental? Don't idolize the early church. You know, it's really good that we've been studying a lot in the book of Acts because we can see for ourselves that the early church sometimes had trouble with unity. Remember the widows that were being overlooked in their care? or with people getting along in ministry, Paul and Barnabas disagreeing about John Mark, debates about the Gentiles and how to handle them coming into the church. When we here at HBC have problems also, please remember that's fairly normal. Every church is going to have problems. Don't hold HBC up to some utopian, unrealistic standard that no church attains to. We are just normal disciples trying to follow the Lord Like millions of others, we never claim to be perfect. We're just trying to serve the Lord and move forward. Every church has its problems and its conflicts. This passage helps us put disagreements on lesser issues in the proper perspective. What happens when Bible-believing Christians hold conflicting opinions about certain areas of the Christian life? Maybe, in your opinion, another person's choice of music is too constricted, or their willingness to enjoy certain movies is too restrained, or they don't let their children go to certain parties that you probably would let your children go to. Maybe uh, you don't agree with people restricting themselves from buying Disney products, even though Disney supports homosexuality, and that's their reason for not supporting Disney products. Or maybe some have a conviction that they will not spend a night in a Mormon-controlled business because they heard the money goes to support a cult, the Mormon religion. Maybe you had a disturbing conversation with someone about yoga. Yoga has become a popular thing these days. And one person in the conversation viewed it as acceptable. It's just a relaxation and stretching technique. The other person thinks, no, it's sources in Eastern religion, and it carries with it certain spiritual influences. Or you were invited over to somebody's house, and it was clear that your family approaches the celebration of the holidays very different from them. You can see that they celebrate Christmas, and um, they do it because they want to honor the birth of Christ. But in your home, you've taught your children that that's related to pagan practices. Or maybe there's a group of five singles and they've decided to go out to a restaurant and have a great time together and three of them order a little wine with their dinner and two others have a conviction that no alcohol should ever be drunk by a believer. Maybe you as a young family have noticed that at your church there's some who've chosen to homeschool. There are others that would pay money to send Their children to a Christian school five days a week away from their home. And then still others have chosen that what's best for their children is to go to a public school. And you disagree with that and you have difficulty with that. You you ask yourself, hmm, I wonder, is there just one correct school choice? Does God actually allow latitude on a subject like that? Is one side right and the other side wrong on these issues? Are some brethren being too liberal, too loose, too worldly, or are other brethren erecting certain standards that are more man-made than given by the Lord? Are these differences simply a matter of personal preference? Are they all just gray areas in which we're free to choose no matter what? Or do the scriptures actually have principles that when we properly understand those principles, they'll settle every single issue. And so there's always a right or a wrong on all of these issues. Can we ever really achieve like-mindedness on all of these subjects? Is that realistic? Or should we allow for differences to coexist in a church like this? Right now, we know that there are Christians that disagree about wearing masks. There are Christians that disagree about the social distancing, they've made their views known. They disagree about when it is right to come back to church, whether it's safe or not. Are some of those opinions right and some of those opinions wrong? Have you decided that you've judged other people's faith based upon that issue? This fall, believers will disagree about who to vote for or even whether or not they should vote. They want the country to be on a better path, but they disagree about how to go about doing that. Um, What is the more important issue that one should base their vote on, what people have labeled social justice? Is that the number one guiding moral principle of the day? Or are issues related to pro-life religious freedom in the country defending the traditional family? Are they more important issues in God's book? Or what about something like climate change? Is it really as big as some scientists are saying, and will it really affect mankind that way? Maybe if if it is, and maybe if it's going to create that much poverty, Christians ought to be much more focused on that issue. Or what about the greatest enemy of our nation? Who is the greatest enemy? Is it Iran with their nuclear weapons? It's my mom's old country. (laughs) Is it uh, China? Which country is it, and how would you vote? Well, I can imagine sincere Christians have quite divergent views about those issues. The potential for disunity over these kinds of issues is real. There are dozens, dozens of issues that are just like this. Sadly, we live in the day when not beliefs about the deity of Jesus or the sole authority of the Bible or the resurrection determine which church you choose, but rather the church's vaccination policy or whether or not teens are allowed to wear a tattoo or whether or not they use only the King James Bible. Now, now those are issues by which we will choose a church. How did those get elevated to the top of the list? Unity depends on what issues the Bible truly says are important and how you think about your brothers and sisters on all the other issues. This passage provides some of the best teaching and wisdom anywhere in the Bible for dealing with differences in the body of Christ. The principles that Paul teaches right here, I think, still apply beautifully to our modern debates. Now you may not be, you might have looked at this passage and you might have thought, you know, I couldn't really relate to any of the debates that were read in verses 1 through 13. So that might not be you there. That might not be your issue, the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. You maybe never dealt with that one. But listen carefully to how Paul guides that ancient argument and settling it and you will find wisdom to guide us in our modern controversies. Really, before we launch into a detailed consideration of this passage, we need to understand the history and what Paul was dealing with in this context. Paul wrote to the Roman Christians somewhere around 56 or 57 AD. He was on his third missionary journey, and he was writing from the city of Corinth, and he wrote through a man named tertius. Some say tertius. And Paul addresses two groups here, two groups of Christians. They're both brothers in Christ, but they're found inside of the Roman church. And in these two groups, there was a potential for a lot of disunity. Even though they, they believed the same Christian faith, they approached how to live the Christian faith differently. And so the potential for disunity was there in these two groups. One group he labels as weak in faith. Notice in verses 1 and 2, they're weak in faith. The other group he talks about or describes as exercising faith in verse 2. Thus, those who are strong in faith, as he also calls them, if you look at chapter 15 and verse 1, strong in faith. So he refers to the weak brothers and then the strong brothers, both of whom are believers in Christ, both are saved, both are part of the church in Rome. The weak brother, though, is weak because his faith will not yet allow him to practice certain things that the strong brother's conscience allows him to do. The particular examples given here are eating meat sacrificed to idols and not observing certain special days. Later, in verse 21, if you glance down there, he also mentions drinking wine in verse 21. Now, who were these weak and strong brothers? In the early church, many of the weak Christians were probably Jewish believers who had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. But because of their upbringing in Judaism, they were not able to bring themselves to discard certain ceremonial laws, certain practices that God had instituted under the old covenant. Their conscience, listen, their conscience was still bound by practicing certain things that Paul knew were no longer necessary under the new covenant in Christ. Please do not confuse this group of weak brethren with the Judaizers that are mentioned in the letter to the Galatians. The Judaizers insisted that all of the Gentiles had to get circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, the Judaizers were legalists of the extreme order. They believed that obeying the law of Moses was necessary in order to get saved. Faith in Jesus was not enough to the Judaizer. Well, Paul pronounced a curse on the Judaizers back in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. This weak group did not think that keeping the law was necessary for salvation. Furthermore, the group that consisted of the weak were not entirely Jews. Some of the weak also would have been God fearing Gentiles who had also been taught the law of Moses. Not only this, But in the early church, there were also Gentile converts who came out of pagan religions, worshiping idols. They had no Jewish background at all, but they'd gotten saved and they'd come to faith in Jesus. And they also could be classified as weak in faith. Some Gentiles, before coming to Christ, were steeped in pagan religion. They were steeped in the customs of the false gods, like Jupiter or Apollo or Neptune. They had participated in that idolatry and in the debauchery that was associated with heathen religions, all kinds of sexual perversion that was involved in the worship of those gods. Now they were Christians, and they felt repulsed by anything at all that would be connected with their old life, especially the food that was connected with the celebrations of those gods maybe to try to climb into their shoes and to understand how their conscience worked, just to understand the strength of the convictions that they might have. Imagine how a Christian who was formerly involved in the occult would feel if they saw Christians letting their children trick-or-treat on Halloween, Halloween being the Satanists' high and unholy day of satanic worship they likely would be horrified that Christians were having their kids involved in such a holiday. They would associate everything with that holiday with the satanic worship that they came out of. Well, in like manner, these Gentiles could not bring themselves to eat the meat that had been brought into the pagan temples, prayed over, then sacrificed and dedicated to those idols, then brought out of the temple brought down into the marketplace, put out on the table, and now was being sold to be eaten by anybody that would come along and buy it and take it home. This meat reminded them too much of their old loyalties. Now they were loyal only to Christ, and so they said, no, I will not eat that meat. And they did it out of their love and their loyalty to Christ. The desire to abstain from wine may also have come from these remembrances of the the drunken orgies that would occur along with the pagan feasts. That's the weak group. Then there was the strong group, the group that Paul labels as strong in faith. Some of these also were Jewish brethren who had come to understand as a Jew that Jesus Christ had fulfilled the Old Testament requirements and they were now free from all of the ceremonial practices of the law. Paul clearly identifies himself as belonging to the strong brother category, for he states his position very plainly in verse 14, if you look down there. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, this meat is not unclean in itself. I have that awareness and understanding to my faith. And so he knew he could eat any meat or participate in drinking the wine. Now in this category also, the strong Gentile converts understood the meat that was there and being offered in the marketplace was just part of God's creation. There was nothing wrong with that meat, particularly if they ate it and they gave thanks to the right God. And so there it is, very strong differences of opinion with the potential for much wrong judging. How could somebody possibly eat that stuff and call themselves a Christian? Why doesn't that guy over there understand his Christian faith better and get over all of that other stuff? Doesn't he understand faith in Jesus enough you can easily see how they would judge each other With that background, we can now approach our text with a clearer understanding, and today we will only begin to dig into it. In a nutshell, these 13 verses teach that we should let believers have their own conscious convictions. Let God work with them, and while God is working with them, do not judge them. Do not judge and reject them, but with love and regard them as a servant of Christ, that that person will report directly to their master. And what we do in the meantime is love them and be patient with them as their conscience is developed under the teaching of the Word of God. That really is it in a nutshell. It flows out of a proper application of love and truth. Now, as far as an outline goes, if you like taking outlines, all of that was introductory material, Um, Really, there's one basic command to every believer here in this passage. One basic command, and then Paul reinforces that command by giving three reasons we should keep the command. One command with three persuasive reasons. You got that? Today, we're only going to address the basic command, and uh, we'll get to the reasons next time. And then after that, As we continue in this mini-series, I want to take the things that we've learned and I want to apply them to various issues so that we can practice thinking the way this passage wants us to think. In fact, in addition to that, I want us to see how God judges things. How does God, who's the judge of all of the earth, how does he go about judging things? How is it that he practices a proper kind of a judgment? And how can we... How can we uh, think like he thinks and make sure that our judgments follow the same pattern that his follows? And I want to bring up various issues that we have to deal with and see if we can't follow along with how God's mind thinks and put each of these issues into that pattern and retrain our minds because we all have opinions, and sometimes we all have very strong opinions, and sometimes those strong opinions are not correct, and we need to learn to pull back on those opinions be more humble of mind and follow more carefully how God uh, judges and the way we express those judgments to others. So we want to do all of that in this mini-series if the Lord allows us time to do that. But it begins by looking first at this one basic command for all believers. And this concerns the relationship between the strong believer and the weak believer. Some of you out there on certain issues, are going to conclude that a Christian is allowed to do X, Y, or Z. Others of you have come from a background where you were told, maybe even by other pastors, that Christians are not allowed to do X, Y, or Z. And so some of you on some issues are going to be in the strong brother category. And some of you on some issues are going to be in the weak brother or sister category. But on another topic, you may find yourself, wait a minute, I know I'm free to do that. And you find that someone else does not believe that a Christian is free to do that. And so you might actually find yourself on different sides of the aisle, depending on your background, depending on how you were taught, depending on how you read certain verses, depending on which principles you lined up from the Bible, while maybe not understanding other equally true principles From the Bible. And there's a little hint that we can get into the wrong application of Scripture if we line up only one set of principles while ignoring another set of principles when God wants us looking more broadly and having a a more general understanding of the Word of God. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. This one command that is in this passage is stated both positively and negatively so we won't miss it. For the positive statement of the command, look back at verse one. What does it say in verse one? What's the command there? Accept one another, or accept the one who is weak in faith. Some of you may have receive the one who is weak in faith. Now I want you to look down at verse thirteen. For the same command is stated negatively. It says, "Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore." It's the same command, essentially. These two commandments that seem to be a little different, but they're really saying the same thing, they bracket this entire section. They're placed at the front and at the end so we won't miss what Paul is really commanding and teaching about in between. And they're commanding essentially the same thing, as I said accept one another, don't judge one another. They're really meant as two sides of the same coin. Judging another wrongly involves rejecting them. So don't do that. Rather, accept them. Judge them correctly. If you accept them, you will show love to them. If you accept them, you will keep your relationship with them, you see. You won't have to distance yourself from them, which is what someone does when they're not accepting someone. And this basic command is repeated in various forms throughout the whole section. Look at verse 4, for example. It asks there, Who are you to judge the servant of another? How can you possibly evaluate how well somebody else is doing when you're not even the one that they're serving? Leave it up to the master to do that judgment. Look at verse 10. Why do you judge your brother? He's your brother. Why are you judging him, you see? And notice way over in chapter 15 and verse 7, the positive command again. It's given to both groups, not just the weak, but to the strong. It says there in in chapter 15, verse 7, accept one another. That is the central thought and command and application of this entire passage. If you miss that, if I miss that, we would fail to interpret Paul's words correctly. So what does this command mean? The command... To accept comes from the verb in Greek proslambano. Proslambano. This verb literally means to take something and bring it towards oneself. To take it and bring it towards oneself. Sometimes it's translated welcome, welcome something to yourself. It could also be used for partaking of food in a different sense, where you take and you would eat it. You know, food goes into you, and so there's a sense in which you've accepted it. It could also be a verb that would be used by bringing somebody along on a trip that you would would go on. Do you see the idea there? You're You're not pushing them away. You're not distancing from them. You're bringing them along with you. The word could also convey a warm wholeheartedness in receiving somebody. For example, in Acts chapter 28 and verse 2, when Paul and then the Romans who guarded him were shipwrecked on the island of Malta, It says the natives of Malta warmly received them or accepted them. That's the same verb. They provided them food. They provided them shelter and and, uh, some clothing uh, for, you know, to keep warm. That's the kind of warm acceptance that Paul means. Strong brothers are to show to weak brothers, and weak brothers are are to show to strong brothers. The strong are to accept the weak in the fullest sense. Accept them into formal church membership. That would be one level of application. For certain, do that. But more than that, you can be in a larger church and you can decide that there are certain brothers in the church you want nothing to do with. That's not allowed. That's not allowed in the fellowship. This means accepting them as a brother in the fullest sense. You worship with them. You witness with them. You serve with them. You'd be willing to have them in your home. You'd be willing to go to their home, sit down and have a meal with them. That's what it means. Just accept them like every other true brother in Christ. Let them be a regular part of the people you fellowship with. Is there somebody in this church that you've already decided that their Christianity is so subpar you'll have nothing to do with them? That's not allowable. That's not allowable. Even even if they're a member of another evangelical church, that's not allowable. If they're a brother in Christ, if they're truly a brother in Christ, you have no right to judge them and push them away from you. That's a violation of this command. You are to give them equal honor in the church of God. They may disagree with you about the holidays. They may disagree with you about politics. They may disagree with you about the coronavirus. They may disagree with you about clothing or food or whatever. But if they believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they have evidenced repentance in their life and they're a member of a local church, you have no right to judge them and to shun them. We do that in church discipline only after they've gone through a process of having their sin exposed and proven to not be behaving like a believer. In other words, they have unrepentant sin. But if they're not in that kind of discipline, you have no right to make that individual judgment on your own. Listen, the acceptance with which we are commanded to give to all of our other brothers and sisters of Christ is the same kind of acceptance that God himself gives to them. Would you glance again over at chapter 15 and verse 7, where it says to accept one another, accept one another. How, Paul, answer, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. The weak were not just to be tolerated by the strong. We don't just let them hang around us but we see them as full-fledged brothers in Christ. You know, the opposite of acceptance is what? Rejection, right? Verse 3 says, Do not regard the weak with contempt. Do not despise them. That is a form of rejection. Paul knew the strong would tend to regard the weak with contempt, mocking and ridicule them, disdaining them, distancing themselves from them? Why don't they understand the Christian faith better? Why don't they stop celebrating that Old Testament Sabbath? Well, the same is true of the weak's attitude toward the strong. This basic command to be accepting really goes both ways, does it not? It cuts both ways. Again, consider chapter 15, verse 7 which I said repeats this command, accept one another. Both sides are to accept the other side. That acceptance was to be genuine. Notice the last part of verse 1. Not for the purpose of passing judgments, judgment on his opinions. Don't accept them in the fellowship just to barrage them with criticisms. Maybe the strong labeled them as superstitious. Maybe the strong labeled the weak as narrow-minded or legalistic, poking fun at those who were more constrained. Oh my, look at that family. Look what they don't allow their children to do. No, can't be that kind of an acceptance. There must be unity, and that unity depends on acceptance and welcoming one another into the same fellowship. Beloved, this command by itself, even before we get to the reasons, is a challenge to each one of our hearts to work with those with whom we disagree. We're talking about smaller things in the Christian life. This week, I want you to begin to meditate, if you would, on how to apply this command to your own situation. What are those hot-button issues that seem to get you and that you have seemed to elevate it. And when people think about you, they think you're always talking about that one issue. Well, if that issue is one of the weightier issues of Scripture, then then I applaud your effort for making that which is major, major. But ask yourself, is it really one of the major aspects of living the Christian life or not? Start thinking about yourself. Start spending a little time evaluating The way you've set up the hierarchy of things that are important in the Christian life. You know, you might begin to wonder here a little bit, you know, wait a minute. I thought that we are supposed to reject some people, Pastor. I've read in the Bible there are verses that actually teach us to reject some people. Yes, I've already mentioned one, and that is in the area of formal church discipline, in the uh, church process of carefully evaluating somebody. Titus 3:10 was a verse that we all uh, relied upon a couple of years ago, where it says, "Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning. You are to reject men like that." In Second John and verse 10, it says, "If anyone comes to you and does not bring the, the teachings of Christ, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting." Yep, we're allowed to reject somebody. Who brings the wrong teachings about the doctrines of Christ. Those are the larger issues, and they should concern everyone. Those are the main doctrines of Christianity. We are to reject divisive people in the church, but there are many smaller issues we must in love overlook and be patient with and help each other. Uh, and have good discussions about how you came to the conclusions that you came to about the way you do this or the way you do that. Oh, that's a biblical principle I never thought of before. Thank you for sharing that with me. Thank you for being patient with me. I never looked at that issue from that light before. Can I also share with you some of the biblical principles that I have that relate to that issue that can help you to understand why I come From a different perspective on that issue. That's the kind of patient, loving, accepting conversations we're supposed to have as we try to build each other up in understanding the Christian faith better. Amen? Now, next time, we're going to begin probing the reasons for such a strong command to accept one another. We're going to kind of really pile on there because Paul does. We're going to see how important this is to the apostle. And as I said, Lord willing, we're going to begin to bring some of our. Um, issues to the fore and began running them through the prism of how to think about them, even taking a little bit of a excursion to understand how God goes about judging and bringing our judging in conformity with the way he does as well. Let's go ahead and have our closing song, and then I'll, I'll come back out for the uh, a word of benediction. Amen. I just wanted to read from Philippians 1. Therefore. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Father, bless this congregation with the unity of your Spirit and help us in humility to judge our own actions first before that of others. We pray it in Christ's blessed name, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.